security as a domain is now as wide as it is deep. And it's a very delicate balance, in my opinion, to have the sufficient depth, but also breadth of knowledge to be able to go and have a conversation with the most technical person in your team and be a meaningful sparring partner for them, even if you're not going to be involved in the sort of the details of how that thing gets implemented. Hello and welcome to Code to Cloud. I'm Tim Chase, Global Field CISO at Lacework. And here with me today is Sebastian Jonke. Sebastian is Chief Security Officer at Upvest, a fintech startup that empowers other fintechs to provide their customers with seamless, reliable, and secure access to the full range of investment opportunities. Sebastian has over 15 years of experience, including security advisory consulting, pen testing, and incident management. Sebastian, welcome to the show. Thanks a lot, Tim. Happy to be here. So one of the things that I found really interesting when we kind of did a prep to, to talk about the podcast was that you wanted to work for a company that treats security as a first-class citizen. I have done security at a lot of different companies, and I have felt that maybe not all companies feel that way, right? Sometimes you're relegated to you know, two or three steps down the ladder, or maybe, you know, you're not the first thing they think of when they make kind of a technology decision. But that's kind of what I view as maybe like a second class citizen. But I'm curious, like, what does that mean to you when you say that you want to work for a company that treats security as a first class citizen? Be explicit about it. From the day you join to the ongoing front and center nature of security in the week to week activities of the business, Security is something that everyone knows they are key participants in enabling. I guess in my case, I'm a little bit spoilt as I was hired as effectively employee number 20, right? Which for a startup is extremely rare to hire a senior security leader of any kind, right? And a 20 person startup, you're usually lucky to have a, a dedicated security engineer, let alone someone who's kind of brought into own security from top to bottom. Now, the reasoning behind that for us was because the product that we were building at the time was extremely security critical. We started out in the blockchain space, handling and, and processing private keys, which are sort of extremely sensitive. And if they leak or are mishandled in any way, then um, bad things happen. And um, so that really set the stage for we're going to do this right. And we're going to focus on not just the security architecture of our product, but everything that surrounds that, right? The way that we do security from start to finish in terms of a secure software development lifecycle, the IT and all the supporting infrastructure that you need to put in place to run sort of a high functioning but secure company. So I guess in, in that regard, the company was explicit about it, right? When they set out to, to fill uh, a senior security role. And since then, it's been more explicit communication around the fact that security comes first, right? So it doesn't just come from me. I've been in a position now where I've been able to kind of inject this notion over time that security comes first because I've been with the company for four and a half years, but it's not just me, right? I am not the sort of sole person shouting from the rooftops. It's very much a mentality that is shared across the company. We have a CTO who, you know, is responsible for all of the, effectively that the technical product that we were building and selling to our customers. And one of the first things that he says in our joint engineering and security onboardings for everyone who joins the company is you'll tell them, right? For engineers or others in the product team as well, security comes first. And it's really nice to have other stakeholders in the business that recognize that and support that ambition. I love that. That kind of involves having the buy-in from the executives from the top down, right? They're the ones that 
set the stage with their employees. I think that really matters because, you know, if engineers or DevOps or infrastructure people, they don't have that sort of leadership, you know, it doesn't maybe elevate security on their priority list, right? Right, because everyone has a day job. They have priorities that are set for them very often by their management to some degree because of requirements coming in from the customers predominantly. We're somewhat lucky and unlucky to be in a regulated industry, right, within banking. Mm. And as a result, we do have a bunch of regulatory requirements placed on us. We have five banking licenses. And the German regulator, the German financial regulator, is known to be one of the stricter regulators. There's a benefit there because it does force companies in our space in Germany to put a lot of emphasis there. And the emphasis is definitely kind of placed on the boards and on the managing directors who in turn kind of have a sort of duty or sort of responsibility to the company to ensure that that is effectively carried out, right? And that very often translates into these needs becoming or arriving in the hands of someone within the security space who's senior enough to make them happen. That makes total sense. And I do hear that a decent amount from healthcare and fintech type people where it's a blessing and a curse, right? It's a good and a bad thing that we're so regulated because it does apply the pressure for security, but at the same time, it makes security harder for various reasons. But what advice would you give maybe someone who is starting at a fintech or even just maybe not in as regulated of an industry as you are on how they can get their company to embrace this notion of security being a first-class citizen? Like if they were coming in fresh, like you did, you know, four years ago, what's your advice to someone to come in to kind of set the same sort of stage? I would say that you need to be conscious and deliberate about it, right? As we've talked about, management has to make it clear that the expectation is for security to be taken as a top consideration, whether as part of developing a product or as part of your back office operations and processes. It also means making someone responsible for that, not as a side job, you know, whilst you're developing the product, think about security. That's like a, you know, a side gig you have going on, but no, putting someone with the relevant skill set and experience in a position where they're peers with some of the other business leaders. For very small companies, this can be tricky because they may mean committing early on to hiring a senior security leader, which is not something that a lot of startups can feel like they can afford to do. But at the same time, that security leader can help lay the foundations for a robust security culture and controls whilst also helping to enable other teams. You know, when I was effectively on my own, I wore many hats, right? I was playing a part within engineering, helping to guide a large degree of what we were doing from a security architecture perspective. Our product was extremely crypto heavy. And by crypto, I mean, in the traditional sense. And, uh, you know, that there's going to be that expectation that you're going to have to support those different parts of the business, right? I was talking to customers about our security architecture because of the critical aspects of what we were building. And you need to put some budget there, right? You need to give, allow some budget to establish the necessary team and technologies, even if very early on you're bootstrapping, right? So we were bootstrapping for quite some time before I started to build a, a formal team and that's okay, but at least it's there. And you can do a great deal of work very early on with very little team and budget, but the earlier you can set the foundations, the more dividends they will pay off over time because the rework of trying to implement security later on, both from a cultural perspective, but also from a technological and control perspective, it just gets exponentially harder, right? There's more friction involved. And just generally speaking, if you're at a, at, at a stage where you do have a CISO, then effectively they should report to the CEO or a managing director or in a larger organization directly to the board, right? That person needs to have the ability to disagree with their counterparts and not feel like, well, A, just be overlooked, 
and say, oh yeah, no, the priority is to ship the product or the priority is, is not compliance right now. You need to be able to have that constructive criticism between each other without fearing that you're stepping on your manager's toes. That's really good. Really good advice and really good thoughts. I do have those conversations quite often where people are kind of stuck a little bit because you know they've got these silos that are built up and they can't figure out how to break them down and become partners rather than you know, just the security team forcing them to do things they don't want to. So, you know, having this top-down approach to really enable security as a first-class citizen is something that's super important. And I think more leaders, you know, really need to hear, I think. And it goes right along with some other conversations that we've been talking about on the podcast and on the blog and things is kind of what's the CEO and the board's view of security, right? And I think that getting their buy-in at the very top and boards these days are more security focused and that can kind of translate down into this first class citizen concept. So I really like that. But on the flip side of that, your approach is also security from the bottom up, right? So not just kind of the first class citizen, you know, which is kind of a top down, but also from the bottom up. So what, what does that mean? Can you tell me a little bit more about that? Right. So yeah, I mean, obviously when we talk about security being a first class citizen, a big part of that is how it's supposed to come from the top down that's really talking purely about the ethos of the culture, right? The, the fact that it matters. The implementation of it for me is what I refer to as bottom up, right? So a large part of my career was in consulting in the form of offensive security in, in the offensive security space, right? So leading penetration testing, red teams, and so on. The teams that I ran and were involved in compromising the security of many organizations across just about every industry vertical. So as a result, I've come to have a good feel for how any given organization is likely to get compromised. I start there as my baseline and really identify what, what is the most likely sort of tripping point for us as an organization of the type that we are, right? So in our case, we're in the fintech space, building a product, and that pertains not just to how attackers are going to be coming at us, but also with regards to the kind of tech that we're using, right? We are a cloud native SaaS first organization. And that comes with a lot of unique challenges that weren't facing the traditional FIFO of, I guess, traditional slash legacy organizations. Mm -hmm. And a lot of top down or risk focused security, you, you know, they expect to put good sounding policies and standards in place and expect those to get implemented as strong technical or procedural controls at the bottom. And I think that's overly optimistic. Um, hmm. modern CISO in, in the kind of space that we're in now has to have a strong grasp of the layers in between their strategy and the policies all the way down to the kinds of threats that their kind of organization faces um, and what does an effective control look like to counter those. So granted, there comes a point where as a CISO, the technical minutiae may no longer be as relevant to you, but without that degree of technicality, I don't think you're able to guide the process sufficiently to arrive at a point where, okay, the control that is being put in, into place is really meeting the spirit of the strategy and the policies that you're setting out to achieve to mitigate the threats that your business is faced with. Yeah, I, I think that's an interesting point. It's like the modern day CISO has to be able to ride the line between the, the, the I don't want to say like the abstract, but like the policy level that's up here, but they also have to be able to talk the techno speak, right? They have to, I think, do both, which just from my experience, you know, talking to a lot of different security leaders, like that can be problematic, right? Just because not everyone has that ability. A lot of people come to being a CISO from the technical side, and that's just really what they're good at. And it doesn't transform to the policy side. And then you have the CISOs who rise from maybe GRC, who they're really good at the policy, but they don't have that technical 
background or that technical speak, right? I think that's an interesting challenge because you have to be able to do both of those, I think, to be effective. But at the very end of your sentence, you touched on the business aspect of it, you know, and, and it feels like ultimately when you're doing these policies and these guidelines and guardrails, what you're ultimately after is being able to enable the business because you kind of mentioned that that seems to be one of the goals. So do you think security should be a business enabler? And if so, like, how do you think security can help enable the business? So I, I think our, our job is effectively to enable the business to move as fast as possible, as fast as it needs to move to be successful while remaining as compliant and secure as possible. Now, that sounds relatively simple when you put it that way. I would say security is especially an enabler in regulated environments where mm -hmm. a certain number of controls will be imposed on you regardless of what you're doing. And any number of controls poorly implemented will result in a drain on your company's resources over time, be it your, your engineers if you're building a product, be it IT in terms of the processes that you have, and then even in terms of the back office and allowing people to perform the functions that they have to perform. I don't think that generally organizations can rely purely on security teams as an isolated function, right? This sort of idea that, okay, we have a security team, they'll do all the security of stuff. Rather, we need to ensure that the concept of security and the responsibility to it is democratized as possible within the organization. People understand that they are involved in the process and the security team is there to help establish effective yet low friction guardrails to ensure that the core security fundamentals are always respected. So allow people to move quickly and the guardrails are there. If something gets missed, then that's what those guardrails are there to either raise it as an alert and bring it into the general consciousness, be it the security team, be it just within that team itself, as close to where the issue is as possible, right? So functionally within the organization. That totally makes sense. But it is about speed sometimes and making sure that you can keep up with the business because the business wants to go quickly. That's why so many businesses are adapting and are adopting the cloud, right? And that's why DevSecOps is a thing, right? Exactly. And in the financial space, I would say our ability to demonstrate high quality and effective security has allowed us to rapidly obtain and retain the number of banking licenses that we've gotten, but also to allow us to win customers more quickly by making the due diligence process smoother and giving them confidence to build potentially entire revenue streams on the back of our company and product. And so this is to say, not so much that we're an enabler, obviously, we don't want to be a blocker. This is very much the ethos behind what I'm trying to build with the function here at Upfest is, you know, get out of people's way as much as possible within the realm of what is obviously feasible to achieve best practices and to achieve regulatory compliance such that we're taking the boxes to satisfy everyone who has these security expectations of us. But we touched on it a little bit when we were talking kind of about a good CISO kind of riding the line between policy and technical, but digging into that a little bit more, like what do you think makes a good leader when it comes to cybersecurity? It's a tricky question. It comes back a little <laughs> bit to the split of skill sets that you have, right? Your experience on your journey to becoming a security leader. As you mentioned, a lot of people come from a purely technical background. Other people come from a purely sort of risk, even business background. And now increasingly people are coming from a mix of both. And I think fundamentally you need to be able to show that you understand all of the different challenges that you are likely to face as an organization within your sector. Mm -hmm. Especially the people within your team need to be able to trust that the guidance and the direction that you're going to set off in are going to arrive at effective, meaningful things, right? Effective controls. There's nothing worse than trying to kind of get guidance from, you know, someone who's supposed to be leading security 
And the person at the bottom, who's like a really technical person, kind of grumbling a little bit saying, okay, but this is not going to effectively move the needle, right? We're not going to be properly mm. covering our bases here by, by doing just the things that are being sort of laid out in the strategy here. But I think the counterpart to that is really establishing yourself effective counterpart within the business leadership, right? They need to trust the fact that you understand what the business needs to achieve, that you support the business ambitions of whatever it is you're trying to build, and that you kind of have this two-way conversation of, I'm going to be put into place controls in order to you know, help mitigate the kinds of risks that I know we're going to face. But equally, I'm going to be doing so in a way that is trying to minimize friction, right? You can throw the kitchen sink of compliance requirements at something and make everything completely airtight, but require like dozens of approvals across the board and mm -hmm. processes that are just really painful to get through. Obviously, that's not what anyone wants or needs, but the business needs to kind of recognize that. Very often, you know, we are having conversations where we're trying to find that right sort of level between complexity and simplicity. And that conversation very much goes down the path of we are requiring you to do the bare minimum right now. And it's a bare minimum that's perfectly suited to whatever this process requires. But just know that it's consciously in our thoughts, because a lot of times the expectation is quite simply all oh, security is going to put all the controls in place for the sake of putting controls in place, which does happen occasionally, but not in sort of a higher functioning security function where you are actively thinking about that business aspect and the business respects you to make the right decisions for the organization as a whole. And that gets a little bit to my next question was like, how do you build trust you know, specifically for the security organization, like as a leader, right? How do you build trust with your team, with the board? Is it being able to match them technically, kind of meet them where they are? And then how do you up-level that to the board and also get their trust as well? This will vary, obviously, depending on you know, how big of an organization you're a CISO for and how big your team is going to be. I don't think you're going to be able to sort of necessarily be eye to eye with all of your technical experts, right? That's the reason why you've hired them. You might even have hired a technical manager in between multiple levels of you and the technical experts. Mm -hmm. But I think within your team, this is a bit what I alluded to is they need to be able to trust the fact that you have a fundamental understanding of the various domains that are represented within your function, be it cloud, be it application security, be it security operations because it's that fundamental understanding of how that function operates, the threats that they face that are going to allow you to make meaningful decisions as a leader as to which direction we need to be going in, right? So security as a domain is now as wide as it is deep. And it's a very delicate balance, in my opinion, to have the sufficient depth, but also breadth of knowledge to be able to go and have a conversation with the most technical person in your team and be a meaningful sparring partner for them, even if you're not going to be involved in the sort of the details of how that thing gets implemented. But at the very least, the sort of solutioning that you, know, you might be having a discussion with and the sort of threats that you're meaningfully trying to mitigate is something that is real and is something that is playing out in sort of the evolution of the cybersecurity space, you know, that you're not just talking about security controls that are outdated or just not at all within the realm of reality. That's good stuff. So, you know, within your specific org, like how do you position security? Like uh, how do you get them integrated? Where do you sit in the org? Like how does it work for you? I've been with the org for uh, about as long as the org. 
So it's not so much a question of positioning because everyone has joined and has seen that we exist, right? And we've mm -hmm. grown over time. The position is very much that we're not simply a central function that will do everything for you. We will try and abstract as much as we can away from your day-to-day -day job. And we will try and put in a bunch of sort of guardrails and controls that you shouldn't even see most of the time until mm -hmm. we need you to see something, right? So if you're deploying some code or you're deploying some cloud infrastructure, most of the time you might never run into us. You could be here for like a year and never run into it. And then suddenly on your, on that, the following month, you'll make a commit to something where you hadn't considered something. And this is where these guardrails come into place, be it sort of static code analysis or infrastructure as code scans, or you've accidentally committed a secret. It doesn't matter what it is, but the idea being that we're, we're trying to put into place both functionality and process and education that allows you and your teams to be independent stakeholders within the security game and where we will catch you if you fall, right? Or if you stumble. And ideally these scenarios where we present you with, let's say the issue or the concern, provide you with sufficient context to resolve it yourself and to move ahead, right? So mm -hmm. in a static code example, you might get a comment within your pull request that'll tell you, this is the issue, this is how you're likely going to need to fix it. And very often is the answer is, oh yeah, okay, I just fixed it in line with the recommendation that then passed and everyone was happy. We never even knew about it apart from maybe being able to, you know, review the fact that things have been caught and then fixed. But if they don't have the necessary sort of expertise or skill set then we're always there, right? It's, it's very much come to us when you need us, right? No question is too small. We would rather know about something and just give a thumbs up, literally a thumbs up reaction. And <laughs> um, but at least we're aware of the thought process or the challenge that's occurring somewhere within a team. And then just give a thumbs up and let everyone go on their way. Then not know and have people wonder, or maybe even let's say a, a less than effective or efficient solution put into place. And this speaks to the wider ethos that we have across the organization, which is really automation being a central player within the way that we establish tech, right? Obviously we're a very tech heavy organization. So we kind of like to say that we're, we're not a bank with tech, we're a technology company with some banking licenses. Mm -hmm. And so a lot of what we're building is to optimize for our processes, right? Instead of having an additional team of five people, why isn't our software doing a lot of that manual process? And then allowing those people to be doing the creative solutioning of the stuff that needs to be put into place or the manual approvals. And so across the board and across the different sort of threats that we face between code and cloud and also SaaS, this is an area where we're trying to put into place these kinds of guardrails where you'll never know they're there until something comes up for a Google Workspace house. If you're accidentally sharing restricted documents using a public link, you're immediately going to find out about it and being given sort of the right recommendation for how to solve that. If you're making some, let's say, changes to infrastructure as code in the cloud that go against the policy, you'll then be presented with that. And, and I think one of the areas that we're tackling kind of really early on, especially as a SaaS native company where we have no real internal applications of our own, apart from the ones that we were building to support our product, everything else is SaaS, right? From the, the Google Cloud to the Slack to the GitHub, it's dozens and dozens of SaaS applications. We are now increasingly concerned about this sort of evolution of SaaS taking over from traditional IT applications that are you know built and hosted and maintained internally 
especially in particular with regards to how SaaS is, is interoperating. And you have users who are using your various different SaaS applications. And very often, you'll have one application requesting access to your Google Drive and another application requesting access to our GitHub repos. And it's sort of an ever-growing threat that I think a lot of organizations are not really paying that much attention to. I don't think they know how much SaaS they have, and I definitely think they don't know how many cross-integrations are between those and how many mm -hmm. of those are to trusted applications and to untrusted applications. We've partnered with a company called uh, Push Security, who basically give us visibility for that to see when a user is basically granting very high level access, full Google Drive access to an application that's effectively not approved. And yeah. we then have to go away and make a decision on, okay, well, what do we do about this, right? Do we look into that organization and do we approve it? Or does it need to go through our vendor assessment process? Or do we just say, sorry, like this is not an approved use of, of this kind of integration and be able to very quickly remedy that? Because the challenge is that otherwise, if you're not regularly pruning this, you're one very small supply chain risk away of some small you know, third-party solution somewhere that someone was playing with for a month and granted full access to their Google Drive because that's what that solution asked for. Someone said, you know, sure, I'll allow that. And uh, yeah, that small outfit of three people gets compromised. And that's exactly how modern-day attackers are going to be getting access to these very highly privileged scopes and, and be able to reach into your environment and then download either lots of files or, you know, Slack messages, whatever it might be, even your GitHub repos. So definitely... Tools like Push and also, you know, things like Lacework and SEMGrep are all the kinds of tools that help us to kind of surface these things on the basis of policy at the right moment, at the right time, and to the right user. And the idea being that we want to empower the user to fix these things themselves, to be aware of the sort of security challenges that are relating to them. And, you know, it's not coming to us and us having to chase them. They are empowered and they are part of the process. I agree. And two things that I think that are important. First off, SSPM is one of those spaces that I'm following closely. I think there's a lot of interesting vendors out there right now kind of looking at the software as a service posture management because what you said is is true, right? That is one of the areas that I think security has not been great at. If you look at like CASB and DLP and some of the ways that we've tried to do that in the past, I just don't think it's been effective for many different reasons, right? And so I think SSPM is kind of the newest way that we're looking at. And, and we've got some interesting players in that space right now. You know, when I hear what you said, a lot of that has to do with managing risk, you know, for number one, which is what I hear a, a lot about in security these days. It's not just about strict numbers and how many vulnerabilities do you have and so on and so forth. It's about managing risk and being able to understand what risk you have and mitigate what you can, right? And that's what a lot of the conversations are about. And then it's also about this concept of turning security into more auditors than doers, where, you know, when you describe the fact that you set up the framework, but you allow the developers to work in their tools, and they may only know about it potentially when they have the results that come to them. And so I, I think that's another key is getting these tools, you know, like Lacework, like you mentioned, that can integrate to be able to do the kind of that testing early and maybe they don't they don't even know it because it's just integrated into their pipeline right and so I, I agree i think it's one of the interesting ways that security has evolved over the last several years yeah i think it's going to be an increasingly big challenge i think it's going to hit maybe some more traditional organizations i guess to some degree harder because mm -hmm. they've been so used for so many years to have you know you have your sharepoint internally and you have all these other applications, even web applications yep. posted internally, and you just protect them behind this hard 
country fail, right? We have none of that. And so we have to somewhat rely on our SaaS partners. And obviously the security from those teams is something that we, to some degree, have to assess on our own, which is why we choose to partner with generally these sort of larger, well-established players, because we put a lot of faith in the fact that actually they can probably manage their security better than we would do internally for the most part. But as a result, it comes with these other threats and the shadow IT is one of them. And this whole notion of the ever increasing, almost exponential cross integration of basically permitted app scopes that every additional user is going to be granting for dozens of different SaaS is going to be something we're going to be talking a lot more about over the coming few years. We're using more SaaS and not less, right? I think that's one of the things that we're seeing, like more people are going to the SaaS providers for email. More people are going to SaaS providers for managing their active directory and their identities, right? Like, you know, 10 years ago, even identity providers were just starting to come out like with their cloud products. Everything was still kind of set up on-prem. And now it's like, everything is SaaS. And then you're left as a security person trying to go, well, how do I secure Salesforce? I'm not a Salesforce expert. How do I secure Google Workspace? How do I secure you know, so on and so forth, right? Because now you have all of these different things that you have to understand and they're accessing your most sensitive data. They're accessing your docs or accessing your pipeline if you're um, in sales and all of this stuff. So like, it's impossible for us to know how to secure everything. And so that's where I think this has got a huge space and a huge opportunity that that's coming up. I, I totally agree. So I do have a few questions for you to kind of wrap this up in a, I'm going to call them rapid fire questions. So brace yourself here. What do you think is the most important habit that an IT or a security leader can have? I don't know if it's so much a habit as it is a lifestyle, but I mean, in my mind, you need to, to some degree, eat, breathe, sleep, you know, the domain. And a big part of that probably means just the habit of constantly learning in the space, right? New developments or, you know, both the threats, obviously, that you're facing, but really the new controls and the way that new technologies can meaningfully be applied, right? There's a lot of players in the space that are starting to say that, okay, well, AI will, will solve security. Sure, it'll have a lot of great applicable uses, but you need to really be able to be sufficiently on the ball to some degree from a technical perspective, but also from the conceptual perspective of how do these new technologies work and how much of it is snake oil, how much of it is meaningful. So for me, it really boils down to the constant learning and development. I like it. I'm a big believer in in learning and development. I've got my RSS feed and my Twitter feed, and you always have to read. You got to keep up to date with it, right? To know what's out there, what's impacting yep. you. What is one tip you would offer listeners to increase their cybersecurity? To me, honestly, it's so much about the fundamentals. I mean, mm-hmm. if you do the fundamentals right, be it for personal security hygiene or within an organization, you're going to be mitigating the vast majority of the threats against you. The technologies that we have nowadays, for example, when it comes to identity, right, and MFA, and especially high-quality MFA now with, uh, you know, both physical tokens such as, as YubiKeys, but more recently the passkeys that, uh, you know, are, are now increasingly being released by organizations, I think we're going to see somewhat of a renaissance in the space. But effectively, yeah, it comes down to the fundamentals. So, you know, if you've got strong identity controls, MFA, strong endpoint controls to be able to pick up on things that would result from either, you know, network-borne attacks or user error, right, of allowing something onto the system, phishing, ransomware, whatever you might 
want to call it, especially in this world where most of your devices are going to end up outside of your protected perimeter. There's no yeah. magic sauce that I would say you need to do to significantly change things, do the basics well. Get the fundamentals right. I agree. I love that. All right. This has been great, Sebastian. Thank you so much for coming on the show. And thanks to our listeners for joining us. If you like the show, please subscribe, rate, and review. And we'll see you next time on the Code to Cloud podcast. This podcast is brought to you by Lacework, the leading data-driven cloud-native application protection platform. Lacework is trusted by nearly a thousand global innovators to secure the cloud from build to run. Lacework delivers true end-to-end -end protection, empowering customers to prioritize risks, find known and unknown threats faster, achieve continuous cloud compliance, and work smarter, not harder, all from one unified platform. Learn more at lacework.com.